So glad that you're here on this Resurrection Sunday. Um, just want to let you know um, about something that's happening next Sunday. And if you're part of LifePoint Church, if this is home, really, really want to encourage you to be here with us. Uh, as most of you know, we are in the process, we think, of purchasing um, the property of South Sound Community Church over on 26th Northwest, right? Northeast, thank you. Northeast. Yeah, that would be the other side of the bay, wouldn't it? Northeast. And uh, we're going to have an update next Sunday on where we are in that process and things are moving along and uh, we want to be really transparent. We want to let you know where we are in the process, what's happening, um, what the hiccups are. The hiccups are few, um, but there's also some things about financing that we need to talk about next Sunday as a congregation. So I hope that you'll be back here. It's very exciting. It's moving along. We're very excited about what God is doing. And uh, so be here. Be here next Sunday. This morning, we are concluding our series, A Walk with Christ to the Cross. And uh, probably should have titled that Through the Cross because this morning, uh, obviously, we're celebrating the resurrection. We want to talk about the resurrection this morning. The title is, Is It Reasonable? To believe in the resurrection. And I don't know why you're here this morning. Um, if you're not part of this church, maybe somebody dragged you here. Maybe a family member coerced you. Your mother-in-law said you couldn't have her scalloped potatoes until, you know, until you went to church. Or your wife threatened you by not giving you your Easter basket until you went to church. I, I don't know. But I'm glad you're here. And maybe you have questions, maybe you've asked the question before in your life, why, why would anybody believe this nonsense about a Jewish rabbi rising from the dead? Uh, how is that even possible? Why would anyone believe that? And, and yet millions down through the centuries have believed that, including the followers of Jesus himself uh, in that moment and in those hours and in those days uh, when the resurrection took place. So the question that we're, we're wanting to answer this morning, and this, this message is for you, if you fit that category of, of asking the question, why would, I, why would I ever believe anything like that? Um, it, and, and I want you to know that, that I've been there. I was raised in a Christian church. I was taught the story of the resurrection from earliest memory. But when I began to get serious about my own spiritual journey, I really had to come to terms with what do, I, what do I really believe about the resurrection of Jesus because it is absolutely central to our faith. Do, can I really wrap my mind around that? Can I really accept that as the truth? So the question this morning, can I have confidence that the resurrection is a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was physically raised from the dead after dying on a Roman cross? Yeah, the central issue of Christianity is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christianity is a historical faith, that, which means not just that it's old, <laughs> but it's a historical faith in the sense that it is based on something having happened in history. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. In the 15th chapter of his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul put this so clearly. He said that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then a number of things follow that are true. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then the preaching of the apostles 
uh, and, and the faith of every believer in Jesus is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christ followers down through the centuries have misrepresented God and, and peddled a lie. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. There's no forgiveness of sins. We are pitiful fools because we've wasted our lives on a lie. And every Christ follower who has ever faced death with the hope of life beyond the grave was sadly mistaken. See, Christianity is not about being nice, morally clean, socially well-adjusted American people. It's all about faith in a resurrected Savior who, because he defeated sin and the grave, has the power, therefore, and the authority to forgive sins. Solving the predicament of our alienation from God. Solving the, the predicament of our impending judgment by God. And, and granting to us eternal life. So let's begin with a few observations. First of all is this, that the Old Testament prophets foretold the resurrection of Jesus. I don't have time to read those today, but here are a few that really stand out. There are hundreds of them. But check out Psalm 116, Psalm 22, which is a vivid description of, from the perspective of a man dying on a cross. Isaiah 53, which is the one we opened with this morning. Hosea 6, 1 and 2. Jonah 1, 17. All pointing to the suffering that would be experienced by the coming Messiah, as well as his resurrection and his vindication. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene, they spoke with remarkable clarity about the things that would happen in his life and in his death. Secondly, Jesus himself predicted his suffering his death by crucifixion, his resurrection on the third day. In the weeks and months leading up to the cross, Jesus repeatedly and with increasing detail, vivid detail, told the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and there he would suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders, be handed over to the Romans, be scourged and mocked and crucified. Who knows how they're going to die? Jesus said it's going to be by crucifixion. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. And these predictions were, of course, upset, upsetting. They were confusing to the disciples. What's he talking about? In fact, the record indicates that the reality and the, the power of those predictions didn't really penetrate their minds and their awareness until after the resurrection. Each of the gospel writers includes these predictions. But again, here are a few examples. These references are, are all from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 17, 22 to 23, chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, chapter 26, verses 31 and 32. And, and if you will read those, what you'll note is that in no instance did Jesus predict his suffering and his death without adding that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Every one of his predictions included the resurrection. And then let's observe that the phenomenon of the early church, the fact that the early church actually even got started, actually took root and grew, is unexplainable apart from the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Someone once said that the empty tomb of Christ has become the cradle of the church. 
See, we Christians don't hold the resurrection to be one amongst, uh, uh, just one amongst a, a set of beliefs, one amongst equals. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. Without it, there would be no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have gotten started. It would have fizzled like a wet match in a rainstorm without Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection. Disprove the resurrection once and for all. And you've done away with Christianity. Many have tried. All have failed. Well, to get at this this morning, I'd like to just point out five counter-theories that have been proposed down through the centuries to the New Testament account of the resurrection. And the first is this, the swoon theory. Say swoon. Now say it long, swoon. The swoon theory. And the swoon theory asked this question, was Jesus really dead when his body was taken down from the cross? And this theory would hold that Jesus never actually died on the cross, but only swooned. Meaning that he was rendered unconscious, or even comatose, by the trauma of having first been scourged and then crucified. It holds that he was still alive when he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and after several hours was revived by the cool air of the tomb. So after having been flogged, scourged, crucified, having had spikes pounded through his hands and his feet, a spear thrust into his chest cavity, having lost massive amounts of blood with neither warmth nor food nor medical attention, he then, even in his weakened state, pushed the massive stone away from the mouth of the tomb from the inside, slipped out into the night unnoticed by Roman soldiers assigned to guard the tomb, and then reappeared to the disciples, claiming that he had been miraculously raised. So there it is, the swoon theory. In answer to that, let's consider this, that Jesus was dead and buried. You have to begin with that, because in order to have a death, in order to have a resurrection, you first have to have a death. The execution of Jesus of Nazareth under the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, is as sure a fact as you can name in all the history of the world. It is universally considered by historians to be undisputed. In addition to the New Testament Gospels, contemporaries like the Jewish historian Josephus the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, the Syrian historians Lucian and Mara Bar Serapion, even the Jewish Talmud, all preserved the, the account of the execution of Jesus on a Roman cross. The Romans had perfected crucifixion to an art form. And remember that before Jesus was crucified... He was first beaten and scourged. And the instrument that was used for scourging was called a flagrum. It was a a whip of many leather strands embedded into which were sharp pieces of bone and metal. Uh, The one who did the scourging was called the lictor. And as he would whip the victim... Those shards of bone and metal would embed in the flesh, and then he would rake it across 
the Jews were, were allowed only to do 40 lashes. The Romans had no limitation. And as that was raked repeatedly across the body, it would expose the veins and the muscles, vital organs, the bowels. And, and very often, uh, the person would die of scourging before they ever made it to the place of crucifixion. No wonder then that Jesus fell under the weight of his own cross on the way to Golgotha. Could not have gone on if someone had not taken up his cross to assist him. Each of the gospel writers attests to the death of Jesus on the cross. Matthew says it this way, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. John says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, not only the gospel writers, but the centurion who commanded the unit that was assigned to the crucifixion detail that day also gave witness to his death. Mark records in chapter 15 when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was, not is, was the Son of God. It's recorded in Mark 15, 35 to 45, that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the Jewish council, a Pharisee, who was a quiet believer in Jesus, got up the courage to approach Pontius Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. Mark reveals that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus might have already died because crucifixion was a slow death by suffocation. So before granting Joseph's wish, Pilate summoned the centurion to inquire whether Jesus, in fact, was already dead. He couldn't believe it. The centurion confirmed it. And it was only on this basis that Pilate granted Joseph the right to take the body of Jesus away for burial. Mark indicates that it was a corpse, not a living body, that Pilate released to Joseph. You might also check in with the soldiers under the command of that centurion. John records in chapter 19, 31 to 35, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Why, why break the legs? Because in order to stay alive on a cross, you have to, push your, you have to keep pushing yourself up on that spike. And your arms weaken and your body weakens. And finally, you can't push yourself up anymore. And you die of suffocation. But when they came to Jesus, and so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who, has, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. 
Regarding the phenomenon of the flow of blood and water from the chest cavity of Jesus, one medical authority wrote that the separation of the dark red corpuscles and the the thin whitish serum of the blood, referred to here as water, indicates that death had already occurred. The Journal of the American Medical Association, looking at the evidence says clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. See, on the question of of whether Jesus was actually still alive, we might finally ask the burial party, the last people to see Jesus' body before the tomb was sealed. John's Gospel records that Joseph of Arimathea and another Jewish leader named Nicodemus, having gained Pilate's permission, took Jesus' body bound it in linen cloths and laid in among the folds 75 pounds of burial spices. They would have had to carry Jesus' body. They would have had to lift it and roll it to accomplish their work. If there had been any signs of life at all, a pulse, some respiration, surely they would have detected that as they went about preparing him for burial and then laying him in the tomb. The swoon theory fails. The second theory is the theft theory. The theft theory. It asks the question, who moved the body? Who moved the body? So the theft theory says, yeah, Jesus actually died, but in the middle of the night, someone came and stole the body. Again, undetected by Roman soldiers assigned to guard the tomb, The thief or the thieves quietly removed the seal from the tomb, rolled back the stone, removed Jesus' body from the cloths and spices wrapped around it, snatched the body from the tomb, and hid it where it would never be found. Because the tomb was empty, the disciples claimed that Jesus had been raised from the dead when in fact his corpse had instead been stolen. That's the theory. And there are several problems with this theory, as you might imagine. But let's begin with this, that Matthew records that the Jewish authorities feared, already feared, that because Jesus had said that he would rise on the third day, the, the disciples might steal the body. They might publicly claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so they went to Pilate and shared that concern. And in response, Pilate ordered a guard of soldiers to secure the tomb, which they did. They sealed the massive stone which covered the door, a process that involved ropes that that held the stone secure in place and posting a sign, perhaps in stamped wax, of the authority of Rome. The picture you're seeing is from the movie Risen, which is the only place I've ever seen them actually visualize that sealing process. Um... And then they set a guard at the tomb. And, and my research tells me that a guard assigned to that, a detail, Roman detail assigned to guard a tomb, may have included up to 30 trained Roman soldiers among the finest fighting men in the known world. So the tomb had been secured. It had been sealed. It was being guarded. But the witness of the gospel writers is that when the women came early on Sunday morning with additional spices to anoint the body of Jesus, one of their concerns was whether anyone would be available to move that massive stone. 
They couldn't do it themselves. And what they found was the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. Mary Magdalene's reaction was to run and find Peter and John and and tell them they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know, we do not know where they've laid him. That was her conclusion. Someone stole the body. But don't miss what is happening here. The one thing that Jesus' enemies did not want, neither the Jews nor the Romans, was an empty tomb. They lacked any motive for stealing or relocating the body. Their purposes were served by Jesus' body staying put behind that stone. On the other hand, the one thing that Jesus' friends did want, yet neither expected nor could have accomplished, was an empty tomb. They lacked the means. They lacked the authority. They lacked the power. Just think about what would have been required for the disciples of Jesus or anyone to have stolen the body from the tomb if they had wanted to. First, they would have had to either attack and defeat a formidable group of soldiers or somehow draw these trained, disciplined men away from their watch. Punishment for failing to keep watch in those days was death. Second, they would have had to detach the Roman seal and roll the stone away from the door. Assume for the moment that the soldiers might have been sleeping, which was the story they told later. Those activities would surely have made enough noise, wouldn't they, to have awakened at least some of them. Jesus' disciples weren't those kinds of men. They had not yet proven themselves to be men of courage. And yet the tomb was empty. A fact that even Jesus' enemies implicitly admitted. How did they do that? They could have produced the body. And the story of the resurrection would have been discredited and debunked right then and there. That's all they would have had to do. Instead, they made up a phony cover story. An implausible one. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Before we leave off with the theft theory and the reality of the tomb being empty, allow me to point out one more fact that I find just absolutely astonishing, which is that the grave clothes were orderly. I heard someone say the grave clothes were found in an orderly fashion because Mary had been a good mom and taught Jesus to make his bed. (laughs) It's a nice thought. Don't think it fits here. John 20, beginning of verse 3 says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them, the other disciple, by the way, is John. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That cracks me up every time I read this, that... John included, I won the foot race. (laughs) Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. 
And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, the disciples hadn't even figured it out yet. And then the disciples went back to their homes. Where am I going with this? Peter and John did not see the body of Jesus, right? So what does John say that they each saw? He says they saw the grave clothes. And for some reason, John wants us to think with him about the exact manner in which they saw the clothes arranged. It's the sole purpose of these eight verses of the gospel story. Why get fixated on this? It's because something John saw about the way the linen strips had been left caused him in that moment to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Notice what it says. Peter and John each saw the linen cloths lying there. It's repeated twice. The word that's translated lying there doesn't merely refer to the fact that they were laying on the floor of the tomb like we see in a lot of artists' renderings. Listen very carefully to this. The word that John used means that they were lying precisely as the body had lain in them. The grave clothes were in exactly the position the body had occupied. I don't have time to explain the entire process by which the, the Jews wrapped a dead body for burial. But suffice it to say that the linen cloths were like sheets. You might say, think of a shroud that, that were wrapped around the body. And they started at the feet and they just methodically wrapped the body until they came up to the shoulders. So that the end result was like a cocoon like what we think of as a mummy. And while they wrapped the body, they would pour in burial spices in liquid form. And the liquid would be absorbed by the cloth, as, and as it dried, the cloths would harden around the body, following the contours of the body, and forming a tight, solid covering. The picture you're seeing right now is the best picture I could see that represented this. So the only way, humanly speaking, a body could be removed from the wrapping would be by cutting the cloth from end to end, like removing a cast from a broken arm or a broken leg. Why is this significant? First, if we go back to the swoon theory, it means that Jesus couldn't have revived and wriggled out of the linens and exited the tomb and left those linens undisturbed the way John describes them. And second, it tells us the body could not have been stolen. No tomb raider would have taken the time to cut open the wrappings and then rearrange them so that it looked like a body was still there. They would have grabbed the wrapped body and run for their lives.
When the disciples saw the linen cloths lying, uncut, undisturbed, lying just as they had been, yet empty, it convinced them that the body had been miraculously, supernaturally removed. In verse 7, the words translated folded, speaking of the, the sudarian or the head wrap. Uh, the word translated folded there it actually means wrapped up or rolled up or even twirled, just like the body wrapping, the head wrapping was left just as it had been when it was wrapped around Jesus' head. John believed when he saw the linen cloths lying there because what he saw was an empty shell of the linen cloths still wrapped as if they were still around Jesus' body. The tomb was empty. And so the cocoon in which Jesus' dead body had been held was also empty. Think about it. You can visit Confucius' tomb today. It's still occupied. You can visit Buddha's tomb. It's still occupied. You can visit Muhammad's tomb. It's still occupied. But Jesus' tomb is empty. The angel that greeted Mary said, He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Why was the stone rolled away? The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that others could get in and find it empty. The theft theory fails. The third theory is the wrong tomb theory. This is the flimbiest, flimsiest one. Did the women visit the wrong tomb? It's kind of a sexist question right away, isn't it? Don't you think? The wrong tomb theory says that the women who came to anoint Jesus' body on that Sunday morning with additional spices simply arrived at the wrong tomb, one which happened to be empty. But Luke records that as Joseph and Nicodemus had laid Jesus' body in the tomb on the prior Friday, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid, and then they returned and prepared, that is, that means they went home and prepared spices and ointments. They knew where the tomb was. It was a new tomb. It was a distinctive tomb. Nobody had ever been laid there. It was Joseph's own tomb, which he had prepared for the time when he would die. It was in a garden area. The women had been to the tomb. They knew where it was located, what it looked like. They weren't confused. The wrong tomb theory fails on the face of it. The fourth is the hallucination theory, which asks the questions, did the disciples merely see what they wanted to see? From a psychological perspective, it makes a little bit of sense. It borrows a little bit from the theft theory. It says that Christ's body was, uh, that Christ had died, his body was stolen, it was hidden away, and in their grief, his disciples, over 500 of them, saw what they wanted to see. The risen Christ was, in fact, a figment of their grief-stricken, traumatized imaginations. But the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus had a beginning and an end. And, and the problem with this theory is that hallucinations are a very individual experience. There's no such thing as a group hallucination. And those who are prone to hallucinations usually continue to have them, and often the hallucinations will increase if they're not treated. 
Luke wrote in the introduction of the book of Acts, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. The, the mass hallucination had a beginning and it had an end. 40 days, proofs of the resurrection. He did not appear as an apparition or a ghost. He, he talked with people. He taught them. He ate and drank with them. He touched them and allowed them to touch him. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul incorporates into his letter what many historians and biblical scholars believe is one of the earliest creeds of the first century church. Some believe that it was formulated within just months of Jesus' death. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-9, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, I, I received it from someone else. I delivered it to you at some point in the past that Christ died for our sins. Here's the beginning of the creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is uh, Peter's name, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Forty days. Appearances to over 500 followers on at least nine different occasions, indoors and outdoors, groups and individuals, including men and women, skeptics and doubters, family members and friends, 500 people having the same hallucination, being able to talk with clarity about it afterwards should be considered something of a great miracle all by itself. The hallucination theory fails. And then there's the conspiracy theory, which asks the question, didn't the disciples simply conspire to form a new religion? Isn't that what this is all about? They saw an opportunity to promote themselves. In a society enamored of collusion and conspiracy theories, it's, it's not hard to understand why this might get some traction, but it too fails. Why does it fail? If you're trying to form a narrative for a new religion in the first century, you wouldn't in those days feature women as the first witnesses to your claims about resurrection. Sorry, ladies. Because in those days, the testimony of women was considered unreliable. They, they weren't even allowed to testify as witnesses in court. Secondly, if you're trying to form a narrative for a new religion, you don't include material that can be embarrassing for the prospective leaders. The gospel writers include descriptions of their own lack of understanding, their own naivete, their fear, their abandonment of Jesus when he needed them most, their denials, their betrayals. In the world of journalism, it's considered axiomatic that if a writer includes data in their writing that's potentially embarrassing or discrediting to themselves personally, they're probably telling the truth. Let me just touch on a couple other things before I close. And this for me, as I began as a younger man to think about why do I believe in the resurrection, this is where my mind went first. That the disciples were transformed from incredibly fearful 
to fear less in their witness of the resurrection. They had betrayed him. They fled in fear when he was arrested. They denied him. They doubted him. They went into hiding for fear of being found and arrested themselves by the Jews. But something radical had to have happened for them to become the men and women that they became. Something unexpected. Because Jesus having been raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit having been poured out on the church, these men and women risked their lives. They died, many of them, violent martyrs' deaths for their absolute conviction that Jesus of Nazareth had been physically raised from the dead. And what that meant to them and to us today is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The Son of God and the only Savior. The only one who could offer the full and final sacrifice for all of our failure to meet God's righteous standards. It meant that Jesus had conquered once and for all sin and death so that through personal faith in him our sins could be forgiven and we could receive his gift of eternal life. We could be reconciled to God forever. Less than 30 years later, it's recorded in the middle of the New Testament book titled The Acts of the Apostles, that these disciples and those who believed in Jesus through their witness were described as these who have turned the world upside down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the central an essential proclamation of the apostles and the early church, and it remains our message today. The gospel without the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is no gospel at all. There's nothing in it. Just a week and a half after Jesus went back into heaven, the apostle Peter preached in Jerusalem, and he said this, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. You saw them. You were the recipients of them. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, that is the Romans, you nailed him to a cross and you killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. So there's a bundle of evidence. What is your verdict? What is your answer? What is your response? The Apostle Paul later wrote to the church in Rome, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Later in that same letter, he said, he put it this way, and, and I'll use his words to, to declare this to you today. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Saved from what? 
saved from the penalty of your sin. So you can either trust that Jesus, as he went to the cross, bore your sins there, which the Bible says he did. Paul said he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. So that you, you can either trust that he accomplished that for you, or you can pay the price yourself, have it your way. Saved from sin, saved from eternal separation from God. Jesus earlier said to his friend Nicodemus, one who was part of the burial party, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, will not be separated eternally from God, but instead have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Today you might say, God's against me. Because if you knew where I've been, what I've done, you'd know that God would have to be against me. But Jesus himself said, as we sang earlier, you are for me, not against me. Jesus said that God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The resurrection is about Jesus doing for you what you could never have done for yourself. So what's your verdict? How will you respond to Jesus? If you confess, openly declare that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, not might be, you will be saved. That's the promise of Scripture. A promise that was validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reality in which our faith is rooted. Not happy, clappy thoughts. Not fantasy, not philosophy, not morality, but history. And thank you that as we look to the cross and the empty tomb, as we trust in what Christ accomplished through his death and his burial and his resurrection, we transfer our trust from our own performance to his. We're saved, forgiven eternal life, forgiveness of sins, hope, hope that goes beyond the grave. Lord, would you apply these things to our hearts today? And I, I pray for those today who, who came in not knowing you, that they might walk out today in a different place, having trusted you as their Savior and their Lord. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.